Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have a very special guest here in our studio today, Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. She is the 117th elected and consecrated bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church with special jurisdiction in the state of Tennessee and the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Welcome to Beeson Divinity School and to our podcast. Dean George, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Now, there's so many things I'd love to talk with you about. So let me just begin with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, of which you are a bishop. What is the AME? What's a little bit of its history, how it came to be? Well, the African Methodist Episcopal Church is a part of the Methodist uh, family of churches. Uh, it started over 220 years ago, basically in Philadelphia, and spread out. Um, it started not because of any theological difference, but simply for a desire to worship with integrity. Uh, most of the uh, the founder, Richard Allen, an ordained Methodist um, uh, preacher, ordained in the infamous Christmas conference in, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, was a member of St. George's Church in Philadelphia, along with several other members. Uh, they were integral um, members. Uh, they paid tithes and offerings, assisted and, and worked in ministry, and he also preached there as well. Uh, but increasingly, as time went on, instead of being on the floor of the church, they were pushed to the balcony, uh, and so on and so on. And so one morning, uh, during the morning prayer, uh, an usher came to remove Absalom Jones and Richard Allen uh, from their knees to give seats to other persons who were coming in. Mm. And Richard Allen says, if you just let us finish our prayer, we will leave and trouble you no more. Uh, and so they walked out of St. George's and walked across the street to a blacksmith shop. Uh, and there began the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, Bethel Church was the name of the congregation that they went to. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, it became a denomination, 1816, when other congregations joined us, and we've been growing ever since. Uh, the AME Church is all over the world on six continents, including Europe and in India, as well as uh, Canada, uh, the northern part of South America, and the contiguous United States. Now, Richard Allen that you mentioned, I think, was uh, very much impacted by the Great Awakening. He had a spiritual experience, a call to preach, a former slave. Yes, and followed the call of God in, into this ministry. From the beginning, it seems to me, reading a little bit about his history, that this denomination has brought together what we might call head and heart and hands. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a real firm uh, evangelical faith, biblical faith, uh, but you see that realized in a holistic way. Absolutely. It is, it is very true. When you take a look at what our, our mission, vision, and goals are, uh, it first begins with to seek out and save the lost, to cheer the fallen, to visit the sick, uh, to those who are in prison, to those who are mentally ill, encouraging um, thrift, economic development, educational development. All of that is a part of our mandate. So from the very beginning, uh, we preach the gospel, but we also have the, we use our hands and feet to demonstrate that gospel 
gospel in a very tangible way. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about your own calling. Tell us about your background. You were born in Baltimore? In Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, the one of two, but uh, uh, a member of a huge family, uh, uh-huh. the Murphy family uh, in Baltimore. Um, my mother was one of five. I have 16 first cousins, uh, and we go on and on and on <laughs> and on and on and on. Uh, but being born in Baltimore, growing up, uh, my family is, uh, is a family of journalists, uh, owned the Afro-American newspaper, uh, which started in the basement of Bethel AME Church as a Sunday school helper. Mm. And my great-grandfather, John H. Murphy Sr., uh, decided to turn that into a newspaper for the community and not just the Sunday school helper. So he borrowed $200 from his wife's butter and egg money and began the newspaper at a time when only one half of 1% of African Americans were able to read. Yeah. And so that newspaper grew from the Baltimore, Washington to nine editions on the East Coast, uh, as far north as New England and as far south as uh, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. That's amazing. Uh, to be one of the largest uh, chains of black weekly newspapers in the United States. So uh, the expectation for all of us uh, was to participate in journalism some way. Uh, My grandfather, Carl H. Murphy, became the publisher uh, of the newspaper when his father passed. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, of course, my grandfather wanted a son. He had five daughters. Uh, And so we all grew up with the idea that your gifts and your skills uh, determined uh, what you would do in life, not your gender. Now, in a way, you did follow into the field of journalism, broadcasting, became your, you might say, your first career. Is that how you would talk about it? I would say so. It it, it was my first career. I mean, at 16, I was writing on City Desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was writing obituaries. I hated it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't well, my... Well, people die. Somebody's got to write it. <laughs> somebody's got to write it. And, and and the junior writers are those who uh, on City Desk who end up with the, um, with the job. Um, you know, writing at 16, a column at 16... Uh, writing about young people and young adults and writing all the way through college. Uh, it was my first career. And I must say, I think I went kicking and screaming because, you know, as a young adult, you grow up, the expectation is you go into journalism and you say, but oh, I think I have some other things I'd like to do. Uh, you know, don't just assume because you come from a writing, editing, marketing, advertising family that you would do that. But that's exactly what I did. Now, say a little bit about your Christian life, your spiritual journey and walk at that time in your life, because I think in your early years, you were a part of the Episcopal Church, right? Yes, yes, yes. And later into the African Methodist Episcopal Church. But as you were becoming a journalist, a broadcaster, you were a person of faith, a Christian faith. Say a little bit about how that was shaping your life and decisions. Well, my my grandmother had uh, five daughters. Uh, One of them was a set of twins. And my mother was the daughter that was right next to the set of twins. And so my family was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, the whole family was a part of the AME Church. But when my grandmother had the twins, my grandmother said to my mother's godmother, you need to take Ida to church with you because my hands are full. Mm -hmm. And so the other two daughters, godparents, took them to church. And so her church was an Episcopal church. uh, And my mother became planted there and the rest of the family followed, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and became active participants. Uh, But as I was growing up, I was a member of the church as a child. I sang in the choir before I could read. I would go to, you know, go to choir rehearsals and memorize all the songs so I could sing Mm -hmm. on Sunday morning. Active in all the church plays and the youth fellowship. But there was something that was missing. You know, I was a member 
member of the church, mm-hmm. uh, but there was something missing. And I call it churchianity. It's not Christianity, you're churchianity. You're religious about church life, but your connection uh, that something missing was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I began my personal search. I, I knew there was something. I knew there was something missing. I needed to find out what it was. And it wasn't a what. I needed to find out who it mm, was. And great. of course, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. My cousins who were still at Bethel AME Church uh, had invited me to come and uh, finally said, okay, I'll come. Walked into the church door and it was like coming home. It was a homecoming, yeah. uh, and there my spirit gave my life to Christ. Our family joined the church, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just met your husband. He's here with us in the studio, Mr. Stan McKenzie. How did the two of you meet? Well, we met while I was in college. He was a player for the NBA, playing for the Baltimore Bullets. Okay. And uh, he had a roommate, Earl Monroe, and his roommate was dating my best friend at the time. And she didn't want to go to a game by herself. Uh, she wanted some company. And I thought that on Friday night, there had to be something better going on than, <laughs> than an NBA ball game. But uh, because we were friends, I said yes. And so we met. We met at a game. And we started dating and got married. And we have three wonderful children. I want to come back to him but before we finish because he has a role very much in your ministry and your church life. I'd like to say a little bit about that. But I'm interested now in how you move from being uh, really a very successful person in the field of broadcast journalism into becoming a pastor in the AME. Uh, It was a kind of, you might say, mid-career decision for you? Yes. To go back to seminary and so forth? Absolutely. I I guess they would call us second career preachers, Mm. uh, basically, because we were uh, entrenched in our own career. I had a life plan. I, you know, moved through broadcasting. But you have to understand, I was in Christian broadcasting. Mm. I wasn't in mainstream or secular broadcasting. I was in Christian broadcasting. uh, Because at the time, I believed, and I still do, that every believer has a ministry. It may not be an ordained ministry, but every believer has a ministry. Your ministry may be choir, may be an usher. uh, Your ministry may be teaching Sunday school. But everybody has a ministry. So I viewed being in Christian broadcasting as my lay believer ministry. And so moving through being on air and general manager, uh, operations manager, corporate vice president of program of six Christian uh, radio station, I saw that as my ministry. So I, you know, I figured I'd say, I'm covered. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> this is what God wants me to do. Uh, but there was always that pull for something more. There's something else that God wants me to do. Uh, and it just wasn't coming clear mm-hmm. uh, until the Lord just gave me a vision uh, that there were people who were falling between the cracks, uh, people who were falling between the cracks between the church and the community. Uh, and so we pulled together. The Lord says, you know, choose seven persons straight out of Acts, the sixth chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, choose seven persons wise and full of the Holy Spirit. Of course, uh, you know, I said, well, I'm going to invite ten. <laughs> but only mm. seven showed up. And the Lord said, see, I said seven. Mm-hmm. I didn't say ten. Yeah. And we pulled together what we call a community organization, not a ministry, yeah. a community organization to help people who were falling between the cracks. You know, a hotline where people could call and have prayer, mm. especially persons who were um, struggling uh, with perhaps suicidal issues or other issues. Um, the the city or government don't have services to be able to help them. Uh, the church doesn't have resources to help them. Those are the persons we were looking uh, to help. 
neither one of us, none of us would consider that we were in a ministry or God was calling us to do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the final analysis, all of us became pastors and three of us are bishops. How about that? Now, you went to Howard. Uh, did you know O.B. Wright? Yes. He was a fellow student of mine at Harvard years ago, and he became a professor there. Absolutely. Loved him. Everybody yeah. loves O.B. Wright, uh-huh. and everybody wanted to be in his class, and his classes were always overcrowded. Yeah. So if you wanted to be in Dr. Wright's class, you had to sign up early. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised that mm-hmm. he was popular. Now, you preached somewhere in this process uh, a trial sermon. Yes. Now, some of our listeners may not know what a trial sermon is. Is. Tell us what it is and what yours was about. In the Methodist tradition, you preach a trial sermon. In other traditions, it's called an initial sermon. That is the process where your pastor, after you acknowledge your call to preach, your pastor will pray with you and counsel with you so that you can be clear that mm-hmm. this is what God is calling you to. Uh, and so this is the first sermon you have ever preached in your whole entire life before mm-hmm. the congregation and the officers of the church. So they can discern the gifts that God has given you. Uh, and so my sermon was, There's Nothing Like the Real Thing. Ah. And that was the title of my trial sermon. And then after that, we begin the process of preparation. In the Methodist tradition, uh, becoming a reverend is not an overnight sensation. You don't preach a trial sermon and become reverend immediately. Uh, Yes, you have to go to seminary, but you also have to go through four years of training uh, through the Board of Examiners, where you learn the polity. Yes, you're reinforced in your seminary studies in your Old and New Testament, but you also learn the workings of the church. So that by the time you are ordained an itinerant elder, you are now fully prepared to take on the role of a pastor in a church. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened to you. You became a pastor. At you, the diaconate level. At the diaconate. Okay, now explain <laughs> that, that because you have diaconate, then you have the elder level. Those are two separate That's stages. Right. Your first ordination is the diaconate level. At the diaconate level, you can marry and bury, uh, and but you do that in the absence of the elder. So if the elder is not present and, and you are there, then you serve communion and you can do the priestly, mm-hmm. uh, the priestly functions uh, of the role. Uh, and it happened at the time when I was coming through the Baltimore Annual Conference, there were more preachers who were retiring mm-hmm. uh, than elders that were available to pastor. So I started at the deacon level. Uh, then you journeyed two years longer in the Board of Examiners, and then you are ordained an elder, which means now you still can do the priestly functions, but you are released from the Board of Examiners, you've completed your studies, and you can consecrate the elements now. Now, you had several churches uh, before you went to Payne Memorial AME Church, where you had a phenomenal ministry in that particular church. I'd like for you to say a little bit about that. The growth was spectacular, but the spread of the ministries throughout the community And I believe that's where you worked with our colleague here at Beeson, Dr. Patricia Outlaw. Yes. Uh, tell us about Payne Memorial and your, your leadership there. Payne Memorial um, it was a unique uh, congregation, still is a unique congregation in Baltimore, Maryland. It is like one of the mother churches of the annual conference, what we would call the second church in a particular district, the, the number two church in the, in the district. It was close to 100 years old when I, when I was assigned to the church. And it was a very traditional urban core congregation. And they had built a brand new church on the site of the old church, and they had been in that new structure for about two years when the pastor died. 
And so following that pastor, I was assigned to the congregation. And being assigned to that church, we did a needs assessment. Uh, because in that northwest corner of, of Baltimore, Maryland, there were a lot of churches. Mm. Five blocks away from me was 6,000-member Bethel AME Church, oh. which was my, my home church. Up the street was Madison Avenue Presbyterian. Uh, down the street was Douglas Memorial Community Church. Uh, um, there was um, City Baptist Church. I mean, City Temple Baptist Church was down. I mean, we were just surrounded by churches. And so how are we going to grow in the midst of of the community being overserviced with all kinds of congregations. So we did a need assessment to take a look at what was not being done so that we could do it or take a look at what is being done so we can support it. You don't need to have 20 soup kitchens. So a lot of collaboration and community involvement. Looking to see how we can collaborate, but also look to see what is missing so that we could fill that void. And perhaps that would be the basis from which we would build our congregation. And that's exactly what happened. What we found, the void was, wasn't a lot of services for youth and young adults. And so we began first with a summer program because a lot of kids on the street, nothing to do. Their parents are working, so they're left to their own devices or to the instructions from their older brothers and sisters who had other ideas of what they wanted to do with their summer. Rather than let the young people be left to their own devices, we put together a summer camp for five hours a day. We had a little fun, but we also did a little math and a little science, a little work along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, when the summer was over, the kids say, now what are we going to do? And we started the after-school program. And then after the after-school program, we started a Saturday academy mm. uh, where kids can come in on Saturday for specialized events and, and things. A lot, Some fun, but a lot of work at the same time. If you give them some fun, then they'll hang out there for the work. And that's, that's the basics of how we began to grow Pain Memorial. Because the parents will come to the church to find out, why are you down there all that time? And why are mm. you why are you here and why are you there? Uh, and so that helped us to open the door on how we can help meet the needs of the adults in the community to help families worship together and not worship separately. And Pay Memorial began to grow uh, from about 38 persons who worshiped in this huge sanctuary uh, every Sunday to over 1,700 people, from one basic ministry to over 25 ministries. And we developed our own Pay Memorial Outreach Incorporated, which was a million-dollar faith-based uh, organization that provided funds for 12 community service projects in the neighborhood. We went from owning one building to owning three buildings. Sounds like you were after transformation, personal but also corporate in that setting and with reaching out. You know, one of my favorite uh, figures in the Westland, your tradition is E. Stanley Jones, yes. a great missionary to India, and he once said that a body without a soul is a corpse. A soul without a body is a ghost. Mm -hmm. And neither one is what God wants us to be. No. Uh, bring it together. And it sounds like that's very much your vision for the ministry and actualized it at Payne Memorial in a wonderful way. Well, transformation is not only a part of my uh, pastoral ministry, but it's also a part of my Episcopal ministry, helping congregations to transform their communities. But in order to transform the outside, you have to be transformed on the inside. And so you still have to do needs assessments to take a look at what is lacking, how you can meet those needs, fill in the gaps, so that that congregation, wherever they are, whatever their size, whatever their makeup, they will be able to be transformers in their local communities. McKenzie, uh, you in the year 2000 became the first female 
bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Tell us, number one, what a bishop is, how you became a bishop, and then the whole thing about being the first female bishop. A bishop is a person who is an administrator that helps to provide resources for a particular region. In some traditions, it would be a diocese. The buck stops with you. That mm. that helps you to understand what a bishop is. A bishop is a pastor of pastors, is one among pastors. So we become problem solvers, resources of congregations. You become pastors of pastors, where before in a co- local congregation, you pastor sheep. Mm. Now you lead shepherds. Ah, that's and well there's put. a difference yeah. leading sheep and leading shepherds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a bishop is signed uh, signed over a region. Uh, mine is Tennessee and Kentucky, where we look after the ministries of the local congregations, the pastors. We ordain preachers. Uh, at the diaconate and the itinerant local level, the itinerant level, as well as elders, and we assign pastors to their congregations. Uh, That's in the Methodist tradition, where in other traditions uh, a church would call a pastor. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in our tradition, we assign pastors to local congregations. Now, you still have a preaching ministry, right? And you uh, preside at the sacraments as a bishop. Yes. You can do that, and you I'm assuming you do that. Yes. We preach, uh, bishops preach in their own local congregations, but also wherever you are invited. So you're not just not yeah. narrowed into uh, just AME churches. So uh, you can respond to invitations and preach in other ways, simply because we are called to be preachers. We are the go-ye therefore. Uh, we are to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it would be very hard uh, to be an Episcopate and not be able to preach. Right. That's muzzling the ox. <laughs> <laughs> Great. In fact, I, we should tell our listeners, uh, we're having this conversation here at Beeson Divinity School, and you will be preaching later today at our commencement and service of consecration for our graduates. Students. So we're very glad you're still doing that and uh, look forward to your message later today. And looking forward uh, to seeing the, the graduates as well. Uh, but, the, but the process of becoming a bishop in, in the Methodist tradition uh, is not an overnight sensation, just as there is a process uh, for preparation for the preaching and the pastoral ministry. There's also a process and preparation uh, to be elected a bishop. We Bishops are elected. They are not selected. They are elected by the delegates at a general conference. At a general conference, okay. Which only happens once every four years. Uh, just as the annual conference is a place where persons are ordained and assigned to congregations, the general conference is a place where bishops are elected and assigned to their regions or to their Episcopal districts where they will serve. Now, the fact that you were elected in the year 2000 as the first female bishop in the AME tradition, uh, was there opposition to that? Was that wildly, enthusiastically accepted by everybody? (laughs) And when you think back on that 12 years ago almost, how do you reflect on that? Well, surely there was opposition because there's nev- there never was a woman um, elected in the AME Church. There were women who were elected in the Episcopal Church and in the United Methodist Church, but not in the AME Church or any of the, uh, let's say, historically black Methodist denominations. And so, yes, there was opposition. It wasn't saying, hey, let's do this. Uh, but for me, the 
pursuit of the election and the consecration was a pursuit to serve. Mm-hmm. It was not a pursuit like, well, you know, there's no woman there. Let's go. Let's go do that. Mm. I mean, that's not the kind of, you don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's go be a bishop. For me, it's a call. You have to be called to serve. And uh, for me, answering the call to serve at that level of ministry, um, I, I think I ran from it as much as I ran from the call to preach and the pastor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so it took a lot of prayer and determination because if you're not called to it, it certainly will chew you up and spit you out. Just as you're not called to the congregational life, it will chew you up and spit you out. Uh, and so answering the call uh, was clearly uh, that I knew God was calling me uh, to ministry, not just for one 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 local congregation in one community, but the gifts and graces that he has shared and the vision he'd given me for life, a faith of life, life of faith, was for multiple congregations. The kind of ministry that we were doing at Payne Memorial were models that could be replicated Mm. all across Mm. denominations, whether you're Methodist or Baptist or whatever your tradition is. But these were models, not just for one, but for some, which was for me a clear indication that God wanted me to serve the church at a higher level. Mm. So when you are a candidate there are going to be 16, 1800, 2000 delegates that you have to convince mm. <laughs> to vote for you. Um, I think that year there were about 40 or 45 candidates running for um, uh, four positions, four open slots. You know, a slot doesn't come open until somebody retires. Mm. Uh, and um, being able to garner. Uh, the uh, necessary votes, majority votes, in order to be able to be uh, to serve. Uh, and fortunately, uh, that night, the year 2000, it was the shortest election. In other words, we can take days yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to elect. Uh, we elected in one evening. I was elected the second of four. I just thank God for it. Now, uh, about a year ago, uh, I had the privilege of speaking to your Council of Bishops at your invitation, and I met several other female bishops. So you're the you're the first, but you haven't been the only, right? Yes, absolutely, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be to be the first and only um, is is a tragedy. You know, you you hope that the door opens not just for you, but opens for others. Uh, and so, in the very next quadrennial, in 2004, two more women were elected uh, bishops in the AME Church, and now. Uh, there is one woman who was elected last year in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. Bishop Teresa Snorton, mm-hmm. and there is now a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion uh, tradition, and that is Bishop Bonnie Hines. And mm-hmm. so we are not alone. That's great. <laughs> now, um, I found it fascinating that your first Episcopal assignment was not in North America, but actually on the continent of Africa, in southeastern Africa. Why was that? I, I believe traditionally the newer bishops are uh, have overseas assignments. It's just like the newer pastors get to go out to the rural areas or to the smaller areas uh, to serve and then come home. It seems to be in our tradition when bishops are elected, they go serve in Africa or in the Caribbean in places like that. Mm-hmm. And so I was assigned to the 18th district, and that is four countries in southeastern Africa, Swaziland, Botswana, Mozambique, and Lesotho. And so I lived, my husband and I lived for four years in Maseru, Lesotho, which is the capital city of that country. It was great. It was marvelous. Tell us about your African experience as a bishop. 
as a bishop, most people had the idea because Africa is very patriarchal, very conservative as far as their uh, relationships, uh, men and women relationships are, that there could never be a woman to be a bishop in the AME Church because you could never assign her to Africa. But I found the opposite to be true. What I found is that in the area where I served is that it's your gifts that make room for you, as the Bible says. And so if you are gifted, then you serve in that position. So there were women who were prime ministers, women who were college presidents and university presidents, seminary presidents, women who occupied great and marvelous roles in the community, in government. Uh, and so that's what I found when I went to Africa. Um, so I, I don't go as a woman. It's just like I don't preach as a woman. I didn't pastor as a woman. I walk in my office and my calling. My gender is a consequence because if it meant anything, God would have fixed it before I got here. So if God needed me to be a man, then he would have dealt with it in my mother's womb. And so my gender is just the consequence of my birth. It is the gifts, the call, the places where God wants me to serve and what God wants to do through me. Well, God has given you many wonderful opportunities of service uh, throughout the church, the AME, but even beyond that in many different venues. Uh, I want you to say just one more word about uh, Mr. McKenzie, Stan McKenzie, and what his role is now in your own work as a bishop. He's a supervisor of missions, right? Yes, he's what a supervisor of missions and children's work in the 13th Episcopal District. The spouses of the bishop serve as supervisors in our tradition. Uh, in other words, all of the work, all the missionary work comes under his department, and he provides leadership for that, for both the young people, the YPD's Young People Department, which is a part of the Women's Missionary Society. Uh, and so in his particular office, we went to Jamaica to help out, uh, to build houses in Jamaica, to help build churches. Uh, and that came under his responsibility and authority. We went to, to uh, raise money to help in Alabama last year or when the, the tornadoes storms, came yeah. through. Mm -hmm. And that comes under his office. Um, seeing that the young people have meaningful shared learning experiences so that they can grow and mature in the faith, that comes under his responsibility. Uh, when we were in, in Africa, as the supervisor of missions in the 18th Episcopal District, it is the same kind of function, but the needs were different. And so under his leadership, um, he developed seven economic business projects mm -hmm. so that the young people uh, can learn entrepreneurial skills because the unemployment rate was like astronomical, 25, 30, 40 percent in some areas. Uh, and so it was no hope of getting a job anytime. So how do you support yourself? Well, as long as you have land, you can eat. Mm. As long as you can harvest a crop, you have food, food to eat, food to sell and food for seed. And so how do we help, uh, how do we help people? So he devised the plan, uh, economic thrust for seven different business projects so that the young people could learn how to be entrepreneurs, handle their money in business, but be able to be in business that would perpetuate itself and be able to hire others to cut down on unemployment. So that's the kinds of things that uh, a supervisor of missions would do. But you have to understand our relationship. My husband and I have been married a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say longer than, uh, longer than some people have been alive. Yeah. Uh, but we have worked together forever. 
Mm. Uh, when he was playing basketball, I was his greatest cheerleader. Whatever he needed to do, wherever he needed to go, I was in his corner. And when God called me to preach, it's the same thing. Uh, he was in my corner. He was my, he's my greatest cheerleader. Absolutely. Yeah. My greatest cheerleader, my greatest critic. And we worked together hand in hand in local congregations. And we work together hand in hand now in Episcopal districts. It's wonderful to see that kind of teammanship and love for one another and fidelity to one another for so many years. As a great example uh, to the whole body of Christ. And God bless you both uh, for modeling that so well. Thank you. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. She is the presiding prelate of the 13th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Thank you, Bishop McKenzie, for being here and for this wonderful conversation. Dr. George, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.